1: The thing which really changes uh, him and gives him a totally new direction, which really was not foreseen uh, in the um, in the earlier period, is France goes to war in 1792, goes to war with the rest of Europe, uh, with first Austria-Hungary, then England, everyone else just about 1792-93, and the war goes badly, and the war goes badly. For all sorts of reasons, the France is in a mess, the army is in an absolute mess, most of the officer corps have actually emigrated, they're nobles, they, go, they, they don't want to have anything to do with the revolution, they emigrate to Germany.
0: Hi everyone, this is AJ Woodhams, host of the War Books Podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Today, I'm extremely excited to have on the show Colin Jones for his new book, The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolutionary Paris. Colin is Emeritus Professor of Cultural History at Queen Mary University of London and Visiting Professor at the University of Chicago. He has published widely on French history, particularly the 18th century, the French Revolution, and the History of Medicine. His many books include The Great Nation, France from Louis XV to Napoleon, Paris, Biography of a City, Versailles in the Fall of Robespierre, which we are talking about today. Uh, he is a fellow of the British Academy and past president of the Royal Historical Society. Colin, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you. Yes, I'm um, interested to hear what the questions you have to ask me
0: about uh, the book. Absolutely. Well, very excited to have you on. So this will so we're recording in twenty twenty three, but this will actually be the first episode of twenty twenty four that uh, that comes out in January. Now, if we were talking the revolutionary calendar, well, it's not January. What what month is January on the revolutionary calendar?
1: Well, the, the months actually start because the um, the calendar itself was set up in seventeen ninety three, but it was set up so that uh, it was thought it was made to originate on the day that uh, the French National Assembly declared itself, France, to be a republic. And that was the 21st of uh, of, uh, September 1792. Uh, The king had been overthrown, King Louis XVI had been overthrown in August. Uh, And so the months actually started on the 21st. So uh, the calendar that they introduced uh, gave a sort of meteorological climatic feel uh, to each of the months, and so the middle of the, well, December, it's like uh, was Nivos, uh, uh, like which attaches to the word neige which is snow, so it's the sort of snowy month. Okay. And the uh, on the other extreme, um, you know, the middle of summer, which is the, de- the day on which uh, Robespierre was overthrown was the ninth of Thermidor, and Thermidor obviously is the hot month. It's the hottest month of of, of the year. So it it has been pointed out that this allegedly universal new calendar for the human uh, humanity only really operated uh, properly in the northern hemisphere, because of course all those weather uh, details would be wrong for the southern. But uh, this is the way the revolution has tried to think about uh, the revolution that they were undertaking. They saw it really as an epochal event in the history of humanity.
0: Yeah, well, um, we will, we'll dive into that. Um, what did you say the, the month of January was? You said it's... Nivos. Nivos yeah. All right, so this is going to be coming out in Nivovitz. Before we actually start talking about your book, I have to ask you, because I have a historian, a French history on the show right now, um, talking about the revolutionary era, did you see the Napoleon movie?
1: I haven't yet. you I haven't. Haven't. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. And uh, a very good friend of mine, who's very distinguished uh, historian of the French Revolution, he said to me, "C'est magnifique mais ce n'est pas l'histoire." In other words, it's magnificent, but it is not. It is not history. Uh, so I think I'm going to be. Uh, I am always a bit of a skeptic about historical films, and I, I think it's. A sort of professional def- deformation that you can't watch a history film without sort of seeing mm. things that are, anach- are anachronistic or you think are wrong or whatever but it, is, i mean i have heard very positive things about it so i'm looking forward to it
0: yeah i mean i thought i mean as far as like being like an action-filled movie i thought it was very 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 interesting uh not to spoil too much for you but the the scene where uh ropes pierre uh shoots himself is dramatized in the movie so if any viewers or listeners out there have seen the movie, um, that's what we're talking about here today. Well, let's, let's, let's start off in talking about your book. One of the questions that I like authors to answer first when they come on my show is if in your own words, can you tell me what is your book about? Yes, well, it's about
1: a day and it's a very particular way of uh, writing the history of the day. But we'll, we'll talk about it. But it was a key day, a crucial day in the history of the Revolution. And so often, historians uh, write about the Revolution in terms of these really major turning points. And there's like three or four of them, uh, really, which, which usually are the pivots around which the story is told. And the first of those is obviously the 14th of July, 1789. It's still commemorated as the French National Day. And that was the day that the Bastille was overthrown and the monarchy accepted that it had to have a constitution, and there would be a constitutional monarchy. The next day is uh, the 10th of August, uh, 1792, and that is the day on which uh, the monarchy was overthrown, so everything changed as a result of that. And then the, fo- the, the, the final one, if I skip over uh, my one, if you like, would be the 18th of Brumaire in uh, year 8, which is, in fact, 1799, and that's the day in which uh, Napoleon, performed his famous coup d'etat throughout the directory form of government and instituted the consulate, which then became the empire and all the rest of it. But of those three dates, the fourth, just as important in some ways uh, uh, equally important, definitely equally important, is the ninth of Thermidor year two, which is the 27th of uh, July uh, 1794. And that was the day that uh, Robespierre was overthrown. Robespierre was an absolutely crucial figure in the uh, uh, period uh, prior to that, which is often called the Terror. And the Ninth of Thermidor begins a movement away from the Terror uh, and away from the more radical policies and extreme policies associated with the revolution in 1793 to, uh, to 4. So it's one of the turning points. Uh, and therefore, you know, when I was looking around for a subject, uh, I wanted to work on the revolution a few years ago. I had a sort of interest in doing that. Uh, I thought, well, this, this this is a really important day. People know of it. They know, certainly, well, everyone who knows anything about the revolution uh, knows about um, uh, uh, Robespierre. so I'll, I'll work on that. And it is, and this is one of the things that attracted to me, me, and I'll sort of give you a brief indication of what the book is about, is that basically it's the day on which most of Paris gets together and overthrows the uh, uh, one of the principal figures in the uh, revolutionary government which was ruling France and uh, 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 conducting managing uh, the terror through, throughout france and it's a very dramatic day, which i can uh, I'll break down in uh, in any way you want in a, in a minute but basically it it starts with Robespierre being shouted down in the National assembly uh, and arrested. But then he's sort of sent out to a prison. And while he's sent out to a prison, Paris, or the, the Paris uh, municipality, the, the commune, the city hall, tries to organize a uh, an insurrection uh, against the National uh, Assembly. It's helped by the fact that Roger actually escapes or isn't allowed into uh, the prison. And so you have this very dramatic evening of uh, 27th of July, 1794, where the National Assembly uh, and the uh, the forces, the armed forces that it can bring together is, is in a face-off with the City Hall, uh, about two kilometers, mile and a half down the uh, road towards the east of uh, Paris. Uh, and the revolution uh, and the fate of the revolution is counting absolutely on what happens from that, uh, that conflict. In the end, uh, I mean, we all know, uh, uh, it goes the way of the National Convention. Rob Speer and his supporters in the City uh, Hall are arrested. Uh, many of the lead rugby his supporters in the National Assembly, a small group, uh, and about 100 uh, p- people within the city hall's uh, management are executed on the uh, following day.
0: Well, first, let me just say I'm impressed that, so your book is just about 24 hours, and um, it's about 600 pages, and I'm impressed that that you've been able to did you think? Were you wondering? Am I going to have enough material to, to fill this up, or was there just so much going on that you're like, I could, I could double this, this size?
1: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because uh, there aren't many days in history in which you could write a history quite like this, which was so focused. And I think it is certainly for the 18th century, uh, and arguably more than that, it's one of the best documented days in. Uh, it's only in the revolution, certainly in the 18th century and possibly more white wiping than that. And that is because it was seen as an absolutely crucial day. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, it's a sort of uh, light bulb day, like uh, the assassination of JFK or the death of Elvis. People always think what I was doing on that particular day. Many people write, write memoirs. But also there was an official inquiry into what went on, and this is a bit like the Warren Commission after the uh, Kennedy assassination, which is very, very detailed. And then also because it was such an important day in terms of what people felt and uh, what they did on the day, whether they had supported Robespierre or not, it was um, many people over the next year or so uh, would be arrested, thrown into prison, and made to say what they had done and what they had been up to on that particular day. So we have this extraordinarily uh, dense documentation at a very, very granular uh, level. And so when I you know, I thought I'd go into the history of the uh, day, I, I didn't really realize the extent to which uh, one could get this incredibly granular material on what just private individuals who are caught up in the uh, in, in the action, obviously the actors themselves, the main protagonists as well, but just normal people in the streets, in the bars, you know, in the gardens, et cetera, get caught up on this and give very, very um, precise and detailed accounts of, of what they did and what happened and what they saw and what they heard. And so you've got these hundreds and hundreds, literally hundreds, probably a thousand or more micro narratives of part of the day. Uh, which uh, some of them, you know, giving more, uh, a lot of detail over a long period, some of them just a particular episode. And so my job as a historian of the day was to try and do justice to the, the density of that material uh, and give a sense of, you know, what the revolution felt like for those who who were in, engaged in it, you know, on this particular day. And it was a very uh, big, big day in which a lot of people were involved, but also the people who, who, who witnessed it in some way as well.
0: Yeah. Well, before we get to the the 9th of Thermidor, which is the 27th of July, 1794, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Robespierre, the person. What kind of person was Robespierre? What was his background? Um, What was he doing right before? I think you write he was just kind of an obscure lawyer right before the revolution. What's kind of his story? Well, you know, um, the, the
1: French historian, uh, historian of ideas, uh, uh, Marcel Gaucher, re- recently wrote a, a biography of uh, Robespierre, an intellectual biography, and he called it The Roswell, The Man Who Divides Us Most. And I think that says something rather important about Robespierre. He's the sort of person, he would say in England, we have this expression, he's a Marmite candidate. Marmite is, a, is something spread on bread. Um, some people absolutely love it. The rest of the population absolutely hated it. It's one of, he, he sort of divides people enormously. So asking what he's like, you know, it's quite difficult. But there's there's the two versions of it really. But um, the, the the sort of bad bad picture, the sort of black legend of Robespierre, is that he is a proto totalitarian dictator. He's the sort of Mussolini, Hitler, whoever of the late 18th century who is dictating the revolution. Everyone is right and of, uh, and who is uh, running a reign of terror, who sort of sorted out the the guillotine, who's just trying to destroy anyone who's getting in his way, and and is trying to establish a a, a dictatorship, a a dictatorship of virtue, because he talks a lot about Republican uh, uh, virtue. That is a caricature which was um, really generated, particularly after he fell. People, some people exaggerated uh, many of his uh, qualities so we need to, it's difficult to get to, to him without getting through the sort of incredible amount of bad propaganda the bad press that it, that he's had but if one tries to do that, let me give you a few indications. One of them is that if there hadn't been a revolution we would never have heard of Maximilian Schmier. Um A few uh, obscure historians of the 18th century such as myself might have heard about this minor provincial lawyer who seems to have been a bit of an intellectual and was keen to write uh, some reforming, enlightened prose about justice and all the rest of it. He was working in a minor provincial town, the city of Arras in Picardy, and uh, he'd been educated in in Paris, but in 1789 he's elected to the Estates General, which is the which becomes the National Assembly essentially uh, when, as the revolution go, go, goes goes on, and which uh, tries to um, uh, which really reforms and uh, revolutionises French uh, government and uh, in every way uh, he's elected to that, and in that assembly he becomes known as. A defender of the people. He's always supporting the popular uh, cause. Honestly, you know, sometimes people said that. I know about Elvis Presley, they say, you know, that his death was a good career move. In fact, I think for Robespierre, if he had died in 1792, not 1791 or 92, people would say, well, he was the future of the revolution. It's a great tragedy. He was a radical man. He seemed to support the good causes. He totally believed in all the freedoms of the individual, right to speak, uh, religious uh, freedom. No, no uh, imprisonment without trial. He was even against capital punishment. He was one of the few in the assembly who spoke very passionately about the importance of abolishing capital punishment. So interesting, ironic, yeah. in terms of what went. Okay, okay. Uh, next, he was the sort of thing I say to um, to colleagues in England or friends in England. I say he was the sort of person who was a guardian reader, all those sort of like left, left liberal, wishy-washy sort of qualities we all we all believe in uh, uh, now, but. In 1791-92, he moves out of the assembly. They have a new assembly. He then goes back into it in 1792. But the thing which really changes uh, him and gives him a totally new direction, which really was not foreseen uh, in um, in the earlier period, is France goes to war in 1792 goes to war with the rest of Europe, uh, with first Austria, Hungary, then England, everyone else just about, in 93, And the war goes badly. And the war goes badly... For all sorts of reasons, France is in a mess. The army is in an absolute mess. Most of the officer corps have actually emigrated. They're nobles. They don't want to have anything to do with the revolution. They emigrate to Germany. They're led by the princes of the Blood, the King's Brothers, who start forming an army on the frontiers of France in Germany. Uh, and they they cooperating with the uh, the uh, uh, Allied armies of Austria and Prussia in, in particular that is a fantastic pressure on on France and particularly as the king and um, the church in particular as well which the uh, catholic church which uh, uh, which has been reformed but this has produced a division within the church uh, there's a sort of civil war going on in as well in 1792 1793 and Robespierre has the perspicacity Perhaps other people would have seen this as well and grasped this. They probably would, but he, his his view is that the only way that France is going to survive and not be picked off by those powers and partitioned and you know reduced to the uh, uh, shadow of its former self would be by what he says is to rally the people. Uh, so, in other words, what he tries to do is to introduce social reforms, radical social reforms, which will give people the incentive to fight for the fight for the uh, uh, revolution, to to volunteer for the army, uh, and, and so on. And this is not a necessarily popular throughout the political uh, class, political elite in 1793-4. And indeed, it's only imposed as he, as Ro- Robespierre and a group of uh, individuals within the National Assembly. Develop their policies and and actually exclude uh, from, the, uh, from the from the from uh, the uh, national assembly and also uh, within Paris as well critics of the government. So there's a very strong authoritarian but also so- socially radical set of policies which uh, he yeah. brings in afterwards this they don't use this expression much at the time actually the, the people say this is the terror with a capital t people talk about terror which is what they're trying to do to be to, to have a very authoritarian government where people are frightened if you like of opposing the government but also they want to policies that will incentivize people to fight for the, for the revolution and indeed it is successful well, you know the um, the armies of uh, France in 1793- 1793 are in an absolute mess. You know, they they, they go in retreat. Uh, France is nearly overrun on a number of uh, occasions, 1792, 93. But by by giving this sort of incentive to people to join up and to fight for the revolution, they're able to put in the field a very very large army. Uh, you know, probably we're talking about w- well over a million uh, ma- adult males at the, this time. Fourteen armies scattered on all all the frontiers of France, fighting on absolutely front every every frontier and indeed they do succeed and they also bring the civil war, particularly in the west of France, under control, and then they they basically force out the Allied troops, who were on French territory. In 1793, and particularly 1794, and just before the, and I think it's an important element in the uh, in understanding the day of 27th of July, 9th of Thermidor, in June, uh, late uh, June, the Battle of Fleurus uh, on the northern uh, frontier is a very, very successful uh, victory, which really means France does not a threat of invasion uh, anymore and indeed Belgium and indeed the Netherlands are opening themselves up to, to 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 invasion so I think those sort of background factors are very important and Rochevere you know he in some ways you know all his career before he joins the government in 1793 has been the sort of popular supporter, supporter of the people and whistleblower against power. He's then brought into power, but he isn't, you know, as people say, he isn't really a dictator in the sort of eight, uh, 21st, uh, 20, 21st century sense. This government policy is being directed by a group of 12 men who are elected by the National Assembly, the so-called Committee of Public Safety, and he is one of 12 who's doing the stuff. You know, he, he, he is He's not even primus inter pares in some ways. not to, uh, outstanding in any way. He's, he says himself, I'm one twelfth of the authority of the uh, of the government. What he is, however, and this is the important part of his character, is he is the ideologist of revolutionary government. He's the man who does the big speeches in the National Assembly, in the Jacobin Club. He's then diffused within France, and they give a sort of sense of what... The revolution is fighting for, uh, so and his colleagues respect him for that. They see him as someone who's—he's called the incorruptible, the incorruptible, the, yeah. the virtuous uh, uh, guy who actually will get people out on the uh, on the battle lines, if you like, and the barricades, uh, if necessary, to fight for the, for the revolution.
0: Now, was that was that true that he was incorruptible? Is there any historical evidence that he was we corruptible?
1: Have, we have no real evidence that he was corrupted in any particular <laughs> okay. way. Uh, whereas a lot of the other revolutionaries, they they see the um, the material benefits of um, of the revolution uh, and uh, benefit from it. I mean, famously, his one of his big rivals in in government in seventeen ninety three four, and uh, who actually he helped to the guillotine, Danton. Danton's extremely corrupt. Danton is the sort of guy who likes the revolution for all the right, you know, radical reasons, but actually doesn't mind lining his pockets along, along the way. Robespierre's always been the person who stands above uh, that. And he presents himself in a way which, again, divides people. Some people think he's an incredible hypocrite, but he's very austere, he's very pure, he's very puritanical uh, in, in many ways. He, he, he doesn't he doesn't drink much. He doesn't eat much, even. He always seems to be someone who's totally dedicated to the revolution. And indeed, and it's a, it's a sort of aspect of his character, which I think uh, you could see as both fault and also virtue, he identifies with the revolution and identifies with the people of France in a very, very striking way. He once, at one stage says, he says in French, « Je suis beau ». I am. I am the people. I am of the people, if you like. I'm. 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 I'm one of the one of the people, uh, uh, if you like. Uh, and that type of identification, which funnily enough, we, becomes a bit of a thing in French history. When you think of Napoleon, uh, you think of Charles de Gaulle, etc., etc. The sort of providential leader, uh, uh, if you like, uh, but someone who has these qualities of um, of um, devotion, dedication to the popular cause of the revolution, which are very, very striking
0: so when would you when would you say robespierre was um two questions one, when would you say Robespierre was at the height of his power, and the second question is the day right before the seventh of thermidor, so i guess sixth of thermidor july twenty sixth if I was sitting down and i was let's say I was having coffee with Robespierre, what would I come away with from that conversation? <laughs>
1: The the, the two questions go together rather well, actually, because I would say that Robespierre was at the height of his power. He's at the most respected. Uh, He's seen as the uh, the, a key figure uh, in um, the way in which the government is working, and he's seen as someone who's bringing the revolution success. Probably about two or three months before uh, uh, this. In in March and April, he he personally sort of supervises, uh, first of all, a purge of the uh, government, of of, of Danton, his rival, uh, and some of the people who are associated with him, uh, who have been calling for a moderation of the terror. At the other extreme, he actually uh, eradicates from political life. Many go to the guillotine, people on the sort of far left who he sees as, again, threatening uh, uh, the revolution. And he thinks that, that he's getting he's called the war against faction. He thinks he gets rid of these factions. Everything will be above board and there will be uh, no problem. But he soon realizes, in fact, that in some ways he's made matters worse, that there's more faction and there's more resentment against him uh, by people on both the left and right uh, uh, because they, they feel that he's gone too far in, in, in uh, attacking uh, uh, fellow revolutionaries. And then he realizes that something is going wrong, and um, about six weeks before the night of Thermidor, he stops going to the Committee of Public Safety, uh, where you know they're conducting they're running a war. it's an incredibly active uh, sort of uh, set of people running this incredible war against the rest of Europe. He stops going there he stops going to the national convention. So he just doesn't show up, he doesn't make any speeches. people. Are, Puzzled about this, obviously, but he does go to the Jacobin Club, and the Jacobin Club is a sort of political association, uh, a political club, which is uh, seen as the the most important one in uh, in the whole of um, uh, the revolution. It has a network of clubs, Jacobin clubs throughout France, but the Parisian one, obviously, is the really important one. Politicians are there, but also normal Parisians as well. So, he goes to the uh, Jacobin Club very regularly still, and he makes speeches of very, which are very, very critical about the government, of which he formally is still part. You know, he's sort of attacking the, the government. He's sort of uh, uh, casting aspersions uh, 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 against uh, his colleagues within the National Assembly. And this really, I think this is where his power is, the power which and respect which he's commanded, I think, uh, to a very considerable extent in France up to then, is really starts frittering away because people don't know what he's after. They don't quite see what, where he's going. Does he want another purge? Of, does he want to get rid of even his colleagues? Is he actually aiming for a, a personal dictatorship on the lines of, uh, well, probably people aren't thinking of obviously Hitler, they're thinking of Julius Caesar or, or Augustus uh, Caesar because they're always very... Focused on what happened in the, in antiquity, so this sort of puzzlement, I think, is a, you've got a period of puzzlement about what Rob Spear is up to, uh, which has been going on for a, a month or, or, or six, six weeks or, or, or so. If we then fast forward to you know the previous day, uh, the previous day is absolutely crucial in uh, understanding what happened on the twenty uh, on the twenty seventh. Because what happens on that day after this period of absence, Robespierre actually turns up at the uh, convention and launches into an incredibly long speech, rambling speech, which is very, very uh, sort of uh, inward looking. It's very narcissistic. It's very bitter. It's very uh, repeating the Robespierre themes of the importance of incorruptibility, the importance of the people, etc., etc. But it's seen as a very threatening letter uh, to many people uh, around the uh, around sitting around the convention hall and in you know in the government around the uh, the table uh, uh, the, in the offices of the Committee of Public Safety. And in fact, it is it is so vehement, but also so vague. Uh, that many, just about anyone in political life who feels that Robespierre has looked askance at them at any time over the previous couple of, uh, well, previous year or so, feels them, you know, they're reaching for their collars, actually. They're feeling pretty uncomfortable. They're they're thinking that he's actually going to launch some sort of attack on them the next day. Now, we can talk to A bit more about um, about whether you know he was going, what he was intending to do. But the crucial thing is, there's action on that day. Really gets together almost for the first time an organised opposition against him. He repeats that speech in the Jacobin Club in the evening. He actually personally attacks uh, uh, in his speech. uh, One or two of his colleagues are actually present in the uh, Jacobin Club. So people realise there's a massive collision coming at some stage. In, in the revolution. But one of the things that's really struck me in doing the research, and again it runs against what a lot of people have thought about the Ninth of Thermidor, is really people were not anticipating it. They knew there was a crisis in government. They were very puzzled about Robespierre, but But even people, you know, his colleagues in the, uh, in the Committee of Public Safety are very nervous about attacking them because he is so popular. You know, they th- they see uh, Robespierre as, uh, you know, there's a, a recent his, history historian, Antoine Liti, in France, who's written a very fascinating book on celebrity, the emergence of pop, you know, the ideas of uh, celebrity that we have today. He's like that. He's not just famous. He's a celebrity. People are, you know, adulating him, if you like, seeing him, or, or, or hating him, of course, as one does with uh, celebrities. And his colleagues think, well, He is so popular that if we attacked him in any way, he has so much support in the convention, seemingly. He doesn't actually, but people think he does Uh, so much in the city hall, so much in the uh, in the in the local administration in Paris that they would risk their own lives in that way. So people have been holding back and just hoping they can negotiate with Rob Speer. And then on the 8th of the film, he makes this sort of very, uh, very wild speech in many ways. And people think we've got to act. And overnight, there's a mobilization, if you like. First of all... Um, uh, some of the people who feel most threatened uh, by uh, by uh, uh, start going around uh, uh, to the home, private homes of um, many of the moderate deputies, and saying, "Look, we've got to get rid of Roeschier. He's, you know, he's, not, he's out of control. He's a loose cannon. You know, you, you think he's going to hit me tomorrow, but it'll be you the next day." And there's a sort of uh, alliance of the very, very frightened, which gets together very swiftly over over that night. And in the and within the uh, within the committee of public safety, even though when you look at what they actually do, it shows that they're still very very nervous about belling the cat, you know, putting the bell around the cat, uh, if you like, because they're all uh, fearful for, for for their lives. So the eighth of Thermidor really does set up uh, the ninth of Thermidor, but it doesn't make its outcome clear. In fact, I, I I say this in the in the book in some ways, if one were a betting man or woman uh, on the 8th of Thermidor, or even on the morning of 9th of Thermidor, you said, well, it's going to all come down to uh, today. Uh, which way is it going to go? You would probably think well, Robespierre would prevail. You would think, well, okay, he's got a lot of enemies now after yesterday, but actually he's got a lot of support in the National Convention. He, the mayor of Paris, the head of the City Hall is uh, his nominee. The National Guard very very important and we'll talk about that in a a minute the commander there is his his personal nominee he's got a lot of support in the within the convention and he's got a lot of celebrity so you think he's the guy who's going to prevail rather than the rather than the convention and it happens completely differently from what one might have predicted
0: yeah well let's 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 get to the day let's talk about so your book actually starts at midnight and you you go hour by hour what are first, how does how does this day start for Robespierre at midnight? And then what are some of the mo- more dramatic turns that this day takes?
1: Yeah. So I did make this decision after. Um, after quite some time, I, I thought I would write a history of the day, but I the decision to write it in this unusual way, where, as you say, I start at midnight and finish more or less about midnight and have a bit of a uh, a chapter or so afterwards just describing what, what happened next because I think with, with a lot of histories of a short period of, of time there is a, a tendency to produce a long sort of you know the context that causes the preconditions and then you're looking at the aftermath and the consequences and as a result the, the history of the day First of all, it gets squashed between these two things, but also it all looks predetermined because you've sort of explained what's going to ha- what's going to happen, even though the way in which you've explained it is that it's determined by what um, uh, by by, uh, by what actually happened on the, on the day. So my idea was that basically to give this sort of a sense of indetermination, of uncertainty about the the issue of what would happen in the day, I should like try and put it down at the at the level of the people of Paris, if you like, what they were going through from midnight uh, through to the to, 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 to the, the the end of the action, and so. Uh, In some ways, the outcome was determined by what happened actually on the day, which was a bit uncertain. You couldn't have predicted it really to start with. So I I give that sort of sense by by going from midnight onwards. And I try and give a sort of sense of the way in which, uh, and the turning points within the day where things could have gone differently. So I start with midnight where the Committee of Public Safety is still in uh, in session. They often work through uh, the night. No Rob's beer, but they know this. they're trying to work out what to happen on, on the uh, next day. At the same time, you've got these d- deputies who feel very frightened for their lives going around trying to mobilise among the normal deputies of the uh, Assembly. But at the same time, I try and give a sense of the sleeping city. You know, the, si- the city is asleep. Uh, uh, at Le Al, the uh, marketplace people start turning up from 3 a.m. or something like that. Uh, but, but, you know, it is a city which is not anticipating... A dramatic day the following day, you know, most of them know there 's probably some stuff going on in the government, but you know that there 's been stuff before. Why should uh, the next day be uh, be uh, very different and and that rem- the people of Paris remain in that sort of state really until the afternoon. But what happens the by the morning is that the person who uh, has been most prominent in going around and mobilizing support uh, within Paris within the um, among the deputies is a man called Tallien. Tallien is someone who Robespierre seems to hate for reasons which have to do with his politics, but also his private life as well. Uh, Tallien's mistress uh, is uh, in prison, more or less under Robespierre's orders, A couple of uh, about a month or so before the revolution. She's probably going to go to the revolutionary tribunal. There is this story which I tell in the, in the, in the book that um, uh, the pre- previous day uh, she um, writes uh, from prison uh, that she's been told she's going to go to the Revolutionary Tribunal. And she says, uh, "I had a dream last night in which I was free and that Robespierre was overthrown. But of course, that's never going to happen because I don't have a lover who will stop it. Well, actually, she does have a lover who will stop it because he, what well, he is, absolutely key figure, uh, and he's not in touch with." Um, The government, with the Committee of Public Safety, he's just got enough support, he thinks, within the convention to make a difference. And he marches into the assembly, stops the business of the affair, and attacks Robespierre, attacks his ally Mm. Saint-Just, attacks uh, that faction within government. And what happens is very extraordinary, actually, because at first you see people... Realising, wow, something's going on here, but they don't seem to know what it is. They're sort of puzzled. But um, Tania has got some of his supporters from the previous night to make to, to agree that whenever he says something, they clap. So they all start clapping furiously. And then you've got this sort of contagion within the Assembly where everyone realises, yeah, Robesbury is being attacked. And... Actually, we have got fed up with him, and he was going too far, and he does seem to have been uh, aiming at uh, dictatorship. And so over that late part of the morning into the early afternoon, they basically launch an an attack on Robespierre in the uh, assembly. He's arrested. He and uh, about four or five of his allies within the assembly, including his brother, are are, are arrested. And they send them out about 4 o'clock in the afternoon uh, to prisons throughout Paris. They don't want to keep them together because they send them to separate uh, prisons now at that stage the government and the national assembly think well that's it job done you know we'll go we'll go and have dinner now you know we've been holding on to our stomachs for for an hour or two let's go and have a really good meal and they do and and, uh the the committee of public safety is still turning business over but no one realizes really that down the road as i say about a mile and a half to the east in the city hall the news of Robespierre's arrest has come in and the mayor, the commander of the National Guard, and a couple of other key individuals realize that they have got to stop the National Convention. And what they try and do is to mobilize support by writing out uh, and by trying to mobilize, by just going out in the streets, uh, people to come to the city hall with the idea of a major sort of insurrectionary force to be gathered there. To move through the streets of Paris on the on the national uh, on on the national convention. Now, about seven o'clock uh, in the evening, the National Assembly goes back into uh, into session. In fact, at first, there's very few people there because most people think it's just going to be routine uh, uh, business, and in fact. Uh, they're very surprised to hear what's going on. We have an account, one deputy who's actually having one, he's having his dinner uh, over in uh, the other side of the river uh, in the, uh, seven, what's now the 7th arrondissement, uh, in a f- fine restaurant there. And he's uh, sort of tucking in there, and he suddenly hears someone going through the street saying, Rob Spears being arrested, everyone come to the city hall. You know. So, so he suddenly realised things have got out of hand. He goes back. Basically, the National Assembly uh, starts forming uh, in that, uh, uh, that evening and trying to sort of find out what is going on. You know, in Paris, they have to, they realise insurrection is going on, but they just don't know what's, what's really happening out on the streets. So you've got this very strange period uh, going on where, where um, the, the, uh, the city hall is mobilising, and for an hour or two, an hour or two, this convention does not know what the heck is going on, and indeed, what happens about eight o'clock, between eight o'clock and nine o'clock, um, one of the leaders out at the commune, out at the city hall, takes a big force of uh, men, uh, about two thousand men, national guardsmen, and they walk to the national convention, and they want to actually, they've heard Robespierre's arrested, and they want actually to, to free him. Actually, Robespierre by then has been sent out, so they don't do that, but they are honestly. Within a hairbreadth of winning the day, because uh, the National Assembly, the Convention, is completely undefended. Uh, for reasons which historians still uh, dispute, uh, the uh, commander of the National Guard says, "Okay, we're not going to do this. We're going to go back in an orderly way to the City Hall, and we're going to sort out, sort out, the, you know, a proper uh, strategy on, on on what 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 to do." And at that moment, well, the, the, they realise how incredibly lucky they've been. The man sitting in the chair of uh, uh, presiding of the assembly says to his colleagues, "He says we've got to die like Romans now. You know, we're going to we're going to be massacred." Uh, but suddenly they, they hear the forces going away, uh, and they're not. They, they basically what they do is they order the arrest of all these leaders within the municipality. And the arrest of Verodziewa, uh, of and shortly afterwards they, they declare uh, that they are outlaws. If they're outlaws, that means they don't need, need trial; they will just be placed under arrest and can be executed. They've got to get hold of these people. Uh, so, in a way, you know, they they realise they are in a bad state, and they've also realised they're in a particularly bad state because. News is coming in that far from being in prison, Robespierre has been turned away from the prison to which he's been sent. And it's uh, actually will be making his way gradually. We'll get there by 10 o'clock to the city hall. So you've got this you know, very forcible uh, sort of situation. And it's, again, one of the key moments. And it's about nine o'clock at night is that in the convention, they realize that they're in this terrible, terrible situation. Uh, and they realize that the commander of the National Guard is on the other other side. Uh, and they make a decision which is completely unpredictable. No time in the revolution has there any National Assembly done this. They basically appoint one of their members, a guy called Dachas, uh, to be the commander of all the armed forces in uh, Paris. They give him 12 adjuncts and they say organize and basically what he does he he and his adjuncts uh, go out get on their horses essentially and go through the streets of paris where already the, the uh, city the uh, city the city hall has been trying to mobilize people and say get their narrative across robespierre is an oh he's a, he's been conspiring against the national assembly he wants to be a, a dictator you've got to support the rule of law you've got to support the revolution if you don't everything that you fought for will, will be lost and basically over the night overnight you've got this extraordinary situation where normal parisians are in the in the streets or you know in their local national local sectional assembly or whatever trying to work out what's what going on realizing they've got to make a really important decision on which the fate of the revolution might depend, and their own fate as well. Because if rugby wins, you know, anyone who opposed him the previous day will be, be up for the, uh, with not the chop, but at least uh, for imprisonment, and the other way as well. So what I try to do in my, in my book is to give a sense of that sort of existential choice that people have, uh, it's incredibly important political choice that people have to have to make at that moment one way or the other, and to understand why. And to understand why you basically find people sticking up for the rule of law, for the national convention, all the revolution has done so far, for the fact that the revolution seems to be winning, uh, winning the war, and they reject Robespierre, who, despite everything that he's been, been, you know, been very strong in, has puzzled people and seems to be acting in a very uh, irrational way. Uh, and by, by just after midnight, actually uh the forces of the um uh, uh of the convention and we'll talk a bit about the forces maybe next but uh are surrounding the city hall. They move in on the city hall they uh, go up to collector Robespierre in uh, one of the rooms there for re- for things we still don't know actually what happens exactly, but Robespierre is shot possibly by himself by possibly by someone else in the but he's not shot and killed he's shot in the jaw which means that the, this man who's been the ideologist, the great speaker of the French Revolutionary Assemblies is silenced for the rest of his life. Uh, and the next day, he's identified by the uh, by the uh, authorities, by the Revolutionary Tribunal. He's taken out and, uh, and executed.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> wow. <laughs> well, first, thank you for that. A couple of things come to my mind. First, you're the... The, uh, in the Napoleon movie, they took the liberty of deciding he shot himself, so that's uh, that's what people will see. Um, but second, what what I think is so fascinating about this, I mean, there's there's so much to say about about all the events that unfolded, but the people themselves, who, as you said, Robespierre is a very popular figure super popular and for for people to turn on him personally but to not turn on some of these other principles I found fascinating. Why do you think the, why do you think most people chose to stay true to the, the principles of the revolution as opposed to the man, Robespierre?
1: Well, I think the thing to um, bear in mind on this is that, uh, and we haven't talked about it uh, uh, much, but especially for a uh, uh, war books uh, uh, seminar, we we should do because this is a day which is um, you know there's, there's there's fighting but no deaths. There's hardly anyone apart from the people who actually go to the to the um, to the guillotine the next day. That it isn't a bloody day like like. 14th of July or uh, 1789 or whatever, there's there's basically a sort of potential for incredible violence, for a sort of explosion of the violence, but it doesn't quite, uh, it's not quite triggered off, uh, uh, if you like. But the other thing is it's a a day which is done without any military um, uh, intervention. Because all the armies are, you know, a day, day and a half, two days, more than that, away from the, from the front. And because the army has got to be fighting the rest of Europe, they don't have uh, a sort of uh, uh, military force within, within Paris. And uh, in fact, Paris is defended by its own people, by the National Guard. So the national guard was introduced in fact in 1789 in initially it was only sort of propertied individuals people of uh, substance who were allowed to be members of the national guard but as the revolution radicalizes in 1792 basically every adult male has a duty to be part of the national guard you can get exemption under certain circumstances etc <laughs> etc cetera, et cetera. but basically you are, if you're an adult male, you are a member of the National Guard, and you have to do guard duty a few times every every month. You, for big occasions, you'll be called in uh, uh, as well. And and essentially, what what is going on in this sort of face-off between the convention and the uh, city hall is the attempt to. Get hold of the people of Paris through the National Guard. They also write to the, uh, the local administrative um, sort of section sort, of, sort of like parish assemblies, if you like, uh, trying to get them mobilized, but actually getting the, the National Guardsmen, the commanders of the National Guard in each of the 48 sections within Paris on site. Each of them will have a large number of companies, some of which will be on active duty on that day, but all of which, if the toxin and the, the drum is sounded, have to turn up and, uh, and, uh, and, and, um, uh, and so be prepared for, for, uh, for action. They try to get them sort of mobilized. So they're the key, really. And I think the National Guard is something which historians have always tended to neglect uh, in uh, looking at the day, because it's it essentially the people of Paris through the National Guard who, who who win the day, and they essentially follow the orders. They 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 are, they've been trained, you know, to to be great um, supporters of the revolution. They believe in the right to insurrection, and in, it's there in the constitution when when the government's going badly. But they don't really think that time has come in some way. So it's a very um, a, a loyalist, if you like, um, a movement within the national National Guard, uh, which actually uh, makes the day day prevail. Yeah.
0: Well, first, Collins has been a a wonderful interview. My uh, my kind of last question here for you is: I'm curious what you think after all the research you've done, and obviously spending a great deal of time in these 24 hours. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how the events that unfolded in this day, what lessons we have to learn in our present day about how all this went down and, and how year's well, downfall came so swiftly.
1: Yeah. You know, I think we're, we're fine as historians when we're writing about history, we're less good about bringing it up to date or, or, or making it, uh, make it real or, or relevant if you like for the, for, for the present. But I mean, I, a number of people, when I've spoken about this, this was not something which even occurred to me when I was doing the research because it happened uh, uh, before it. But um, the events of 6th of January in the United States were were, were brought to my attention on a number of occasions uh, because it was people argued that essentially you've got someone uh, in power in a position of authority, leader of the executive, obviously in the United States, claiming to represent to represent uh, uh, through his supporters the uh, the people uh, acting against the uh, existing legislature. So I, I, you know, I don't really want to get into that. I don't, you know, comparison between Donald Trump and Rosberg. I don't think we'll get very far, quite honestly. Uh, but but I think you know that that, that there are other striking uh, moments as well. But I think in terms of writing contemporary history, writing writing about events in the recent past, it is helpful to have this. I think the, the type of approach which I've 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 tried out uh, to get get in, if you like, and not to see everything in terms of structural, long-term effects playing themselves out, if you like, but to see the element of contingency, of chance, of just anything happening, of serendipity in some ways, operating uh, uh, in in politics, And, and in a way, if there's a moral problem, to be always prepared for that.
0: Yeah, well... Colin, if people want to stay in touch with your work, are you on social media? How can people stay in touch with what you're writing about and what you're doing?
1: Well, I hope they would. I'm I'm actually, um, I've just completed a book actually, which is okay. uh, on, uh, it's uh, the uh, edition of a correspondence which a very aged and very counter-revolutionary duchess wrote about the French Revolution from the middle of Paris, moreover, uh, for the most part, in the early part of the uh, 1790s. And I'm just in the process of writing a a short history of France, a little condensed history of France from earlier, earliest times. Uh, If you go on the website at um, uh, Queen Mary uh, University of London, you'll see what I'm up to, to a large part.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, a prolific writer. You've got two more, two more books uh, after this. This latest one uh, already, already in the pipeline. Yeah, thank you. Well, Colin Jones, The Fall of Robespierre: Twenty Four Hours in Revolutionary Paris. Go buy a copy. Go check it out from your library. What an interesting tale that you've told here, Colin. And uh, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for you. Thank you.